you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 32 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, good to see you as always. And last week we were joined in studio by criminal barristers Luigi Ray and Darren Lawler, who are fighting the good fight to have the rates of pay uh, for criminal proceedings improved. No surprise, this was a popular one up in the Phoenix Park. Of course, yeah. Yeah, what do you think? Well, Will we I, see them all gathering, I, I gathering think, around burning change, bins with I, placards? I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if changes were made fairly yeah, soon. No, they, were, they were very passionate about it. Uh, it was a brilliant interview, I have to say. Really, really good. And they made their case so well. OK, well, today we're taking a look back at one of the great legal characters of Irish legal history, Christopher Pallas, the last Chief Baron of Ireland. And we will be joined in studio by Professor Una Breen and Dr Noel McGrath from the Legal Department in UCD, who have published a fascinating collection of essays on Chief Baron Palace. Not only was he a colossus in Irish legal history, but the influence of his decisions can be found throughout the common law world. I know this is one you're looking forward to, Mark. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I had the very good fortune to see them presenting to the Irish Legal History Society on the subject. And certainly I had no idea of the influence of, of uh, Chief Baron wow. Palace. Yeah, me neither yeah. before this. What a fascinating character and really looking forward to those interviews. But first, Mark, we're going to discuss three cases which you identified from the Decisis website. The first case this week is a professional negligence claim involving a barrister and solicitor. This is the case of James versus Waters, a decision in the Court of Appeal by Ms. Justice Nuala Butler. These proceedings had been brought against a solicitor and barrister arising from their involvement in a case. The High Court struck out the case against the barrister uh, because it was bound to fail. This was appealed to the Court of Appeal. Yeah, so the the plaintiff in this case was involved in personal injuries proceedings and they brought an application, a, a, a case against the solicitor and barrister, basically saying that they'd encouraged her to bring proceedings that were bound to fail in order to rack up fees. So that, so she then brings this case against the solicitor and barristers, uh, barrister and an application was made to dismiss the case as effectively an abusive process that it was bound to fail and it was struck out in the High Court and that was then appealed to the Court of Appeal and Ms Justice Butler upheld the decision, she said, there's absolutely no way that this case could succeed against the sister and barrister. Okay, it's just it was not bound, to, bound, to, yeah, fail. Yeah, bound yeah. to fail. Okay, well next let's move to a case concerning the thorny issue of agricultural diesel. And you, Mark, with your agricultural background, you'll love this one. This is the case of Quigley versus the Revenue Commissioners, a decision of Ms Justice Siobhan Phelan. Now, it concerns a fuel trader who sought details from Revenue about interviews they had conducted with his customers when making an assessment as to tax concerning agricultural diesel. He said he should be entitled to disclosure of this information yeah. uh, prior to an appeal before the Tax Appeals Commission. Revenue said no. So, as those from agricultural background will know well, and maybe some others won't be so familiar with, different tax rates apply to agricultural diesel. Now, the only way you can tell whether diesel is agricultural or not is that it gets dyed. I seem to remember when I was a teenager, green, it was, was red diesel, red but diesel, now yeah. it seems to be described as green diesel. The phrase they use is MGO, marked gas oil is the term that they use technically, apparently. Red is so much easier, isn't it, really? <laughs> exactly. But the point being that if you are trading in this, there is always a danger that it appears 
appears that there is quite a business in laundering diesel and turning it from marked diesel into unmarked diesel. And obviously that is a fraud on the revenue. So when you are trading in in such diesel, then you, you need to keep obviously very good books and accounts to account for what happens to all the diesel you buy. And the revenue seem to have taken the view that this person might not be paying all the tax that he should have been paying. They then brought a, a case against him, which was then appealed to the Tax Appeals Commission. Now, it transpired that they told the Tax Appeals Commission that they had interviewed a number of his customers, 44 customers, and that that in some way informed the case that they brought against him. He said, well, obviously, if this is a case against me, I should be entitled to disclosure of this. And so he brought this case before the High Court by way of judicial review. The curious thing is that the High Court said was, no, because the Tax Appeals Commission bases its decision on his own books and records, he doesn't need to get disclosure of the interviews. The only reason he'd be entitled to disclosure of the interviews is if the revenue specifically said that his own books were not correct in a particular regard okay. and we're relying on the relevant So interviews. he wanted to know what exactly. the customer said. He wanted to know what his customers were saying about yeah, him. Yeah, and, and you know what, I can understand why there might be very good reasons for keeping that information away from him, but we'll speculate no more <laughs> in relation to that. Okay, finally, case number three, we're looking at a planning judicial review and the impact on protected structures. Okay, the interesting one, this. Mm. This is the case of North Great Georgia Street Preservation Society and on board Planola. In this case, planning permission had been given to demolish some 19th century buildings. Really? A campaign group sought to protect them by judicial review and to quash the planning permission that had been granted. Yeah, this is a case where, obviously, there's a lot of campaign groups in, in Dublin who se- seek to protect certain historic buildings. And what happened here was that the uh, that Unbold Planola had given planning permission for the demolition, obviously, to make way for other development. And they dated back to the 19th and, in certain cases, the 18th century in relation to paving stones. But they weren't protected structures. And so because they weren't protected structures, the uh, the High Court said, well, there's no, there's nothing we can do here. This is a this is a matter for, for Unborn Planola. You can't go in and sort of say, well, they should have been protected structures at a later stage. That's, um, it, it was certainly within the remit of Unborn Planola to grant the planning permission. And okay. of course... Mr. Justice Humphreys, was it? I didn't mention yes, the judge in this yes, case. Yes, yeah. well, it was Mr. Justice Humphreys. And I think, uh, I mean, you know, obviously there are structures and structures. There are historic buildings that have a, 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 a particular facade or, you know, yes. that sort of deserving of, of protection or whatever. Yeah. Then often, you know, there are sheds or whatever that might date back 200 years and maybe, just maybe, it's justifiable to replace them with more modern development. Oh, Far be it for me. Perish the thought. <laughs> okay, back shortly with Professor Una Breen and Dr. Noel McGrath from UCD. Silence in the fifth court. Well, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the studio Professor Una Breen, an old lecturer of mine. I, not old is not the right word at all, but a lecturer of mine oh, from the good old days. You taught me equity once upon a time, Una. I tell and you, the, the years have flown, I know, Peter. The and, years have uh, flown. Look at us both now. And, and what a wonderful <laughs> lecturer you were, and you were. And a colleague, uh, barrister, Dr. Noel McGrath, who's joined us in the law library, but is obviously still associated with the law department in the Sutherland School of Law. I have mentioned it. That's right. We got that's the full right, title Sutherland in. School of the full title. ECD. Absolutely. Now, the reason we have brought you in here today is to talk about this wonderful book of essays that you've written about Chief Baron Palace, Christopher Palace. Now, he was, you know, a gigantic figure of Victorian Ireland, I suppose. And it's an incredible story. OK, so let's just get into it, Una. OK, so, so who was Chief Baron Palace? Well, I suppose it's a name we all know, Peter. If you ever study law, you've heard of the Chief Baron, the last of the Lord Chief Barons. And he was a lawyer 
He was a barrister in his time. He became a judge in the Court of Exchequer, court that no longer exists today, post-Judicature Act. He rose to the top of his trade and he stayed there. In fact, he outlasted the judges in that period. 40 years he served on the court, much longer than those who appointed him thought he would last. Yes. They thought he would be gone. And crucially, he was a Catholic. Now, let's give his era. Will you tell, yes. will you tell our listeners so, about his era? He was born in 1831 on Christmas Day, as it happens, um, in Dublin, in Gardner Street, in those beautiful old houses. He was the son of a solicitor, son of Andrew Palace and his wife, Eleanor Plunkett. And he had... Um, a very illustrious pedigree because he was descended from uh, the wonderful sounding Octavio de Palacio, who was an Archbishop of Armagh back in the 1400s. So if you want pedigree, uh, that's where you go, Peter. Educated at Belvedere and then later at Clongos, uh, Clongos Wood. He went on to study mathematics at Trinity College uh, in the 1840s and he was called to the bar in 1853. And as you mentioned his Catholicism, it's probably only because he's a Catholic that we have the benefit of him in law at all. Because had he not been a Catholic, he would have been eligible for a fellowship at Trinity and he would have liked academia and he would probably have stayed in the field of maths. But not being able to become a fellow of Trinity and the financial support that that would bring with it, he went and he studied for the bar. So I am Trinity's last was our gain. Absolutely. And I'm fascinated by this kind of academic background in maths. Yes. I mean, for a guy who was so learned, he could write such wonderful judgments. You know, there is a mathematical, I can, we've said this a couple of times on this show, Mark, you know, the mathematical background to law, the reasoning, the logic, the you logic. know, and does that feature in his decisions? I, I think probably does to a degree, but not as much as perhaps you would see in other judges who've been in that space. So if we think today and we think of Chief Justice Clark and you see the logic in his judgments and you think of the sort of mathematical background Another that mathematician, he, yeah. he would have brought, mm. you think of Lord Denning and his chemistry background and you see the logic there. So perhaps we might say that Chief Baron Palace was an early version um, of that. I, I'm sure when we get into talk about his his career in the law, and Noel will point out in the corporate law area, Perhaps yes. there's not that much where you would say there's great logic uh, that commercial oh, really? okay. lawyers well, we're would looking like forward today. To that. No, I know you tell us when. When did you first become aware of Chief Baron Palace? Well, I think like everybody else, you know, he's he's, he's one of those figures from your your legal education, right? Everybody's read a, a Palace CB judgment at some point, or at least has been told to read a Palace CB judgment. Um, at some point. Um, so yes, so that's where I first came across him as a law student like everybody else. And I think it's such a, there's two things that, that that are really interesting about Palace in that space. The first, of course, is that it's an unusual name, right? It's, yes. a, it's, a, it's a great advantage um, if you're going to have a legacy, to have an unusual surname. I suppose surname. if your ancestor is called Octavio, I mean, that, that goes in the family, doesn't you've, it? You've, you've, you've kind of got a good start there, all right. Um, and the second thing, of course, about Palace is that when you counter Palace through the law reports, He's very rarely just Palace CB. Um, he's always the great Irish judge Palace. He's always the great chief baron Palace. He's a, a figure in the law reports that attracts this kind of laudatory language um, all the time. He's not just cited um, in the way that, you know, you have Mr. Justice X um, is cited in the ratio of A and B. Yes. Um, he's always cited with this sort of atmosphere of great authority and this expectation of, you know, this is the this is the guy who laid down the rule. And, and his, that's really what and got And his impact Una in the common I law world is huge. huge. Now, you guys are obviously big fans and you felt the modern world needs to know more about this guy. 
So you put together this wonderful book of essays. Will you tell us how you went about that, Noel? Well, what we did was we first and foremost decided that what we'd start off by doing was trying to track down um, as many of the palace judgments as we possibly can. Um, so we got ourselves a research assistant to go off and do the tireless job of pulling down the law reports manually off the shelf and getting us a list of the cases. And once we had a kind of a sense of what his judicial career is, and we're, we're talking here about 1,569 reported judgments, so it's not a small job. Um, he wasn't so afraid to work. He wasn't afraid to break that down. 1,569. And how long was he on the bench? He was 40, 40 odd years, years on So the how bench. many is that per year? Well, it, it, that's really interesting that you ask that question, Mark, because when we start to look at his citations, we have to add two caveats in, firstly. Mm -hmm. We have not been able to catalogue all of his cases. We have his reported cases. Mere, the okay? mere 1,500 The mere 1,569 reported cases. And we're aware that there are even two mm. series of cases that we couldn't get access to. Right. So we don't even have all of them. Okay. We also know that he had a very active assize uh, role. Mm. He would go on circuit yeah. around the country. And those were the petty sessions of the old days. Yeah. And those cases are not in the reports. See. They're in the newspapers. <laughs> so you'd go to the Irish Times or the Kerry Chronicle or the, the Waterford Express and you'd find out what did Palace decide when he was in Waterford or Wexford or Killarney in your area. But on a year where we can say, right, we have a fairly good feel in terms of reported cases, he could be writing 80 or 90 judgments a year. Wow. Okay. And these delivered. are detailed judgments. These are reserved judgments. Wow. Yeah. And reserved judgments that an editor of the reports thought was worth reporting. Now, obviously, mm. they vary. And, you know, like, I mean, I think you've you've commented on it on the pod podcast yourselves in previous episodes, right? Since the 19th century, we've invented the dictaphone and judgments have gotten correspondingly longer. So some of these are quite short, um, but some of them and quite a lot of them um, are fairly substantive, important judgments um, that are still being cited and still being relied on and are still influencing the law both within the courts and within the legislature. Um, you can see, you know, as we start to codify some areas of the common law, the Defamation Act is the part that's covered most clearly in the book. Um, you'll see Palace, um, his judgments, um, start to influence how statutes are drafted. So well, we're using his language um, in bits of the Defamation mm. Act for sure. Well, I suppose that, that 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 is the question. I mean, you know, obviously quantity doesn't mean quality. And he covered a number of different areas. And I must admit, while, while, while everybody else here seems to have studied him a lot in college, all I can remember is that the, the, about Palace was this issue to do with whether monies left from masses were yes. uh, had charitable That's your speciality, Una, isn't it? <laughs> but, um, yeah, absolutely. But, but, but looking at, I've seen your presentation on this before. I mean, he covered an extraordinarily wide area and the fact that he's described as the Great Palace suggests that he was well regarded in all of those areas. Is that right? It's amazing because when you break down the scope of his judgments, Mark, you find it's pretty much a third, a third, a third for public law cases, private law cases and civil and criminal procedure cases. So right. you, didn't, you don't have the luxury that you might have today if you're a superior court judge, that you have a specialist area and you're left alone with that. You're, you're doing everything. You're doing the dog bites, you're doing the divorces, you're doing everything as a judge back in the Victorian times. When we look at his monumental judgments, when we look at his judgments that are cited abroad, even 10, 20, 50, 100 years after his death, again, it's across quite a broad area of expertise. So, 15% of his lifetime cases were tort cases. 
3% of his cases were trust law cases. Mm. But he's as likely to be cited abroad today in the area that you mentioned, charitable trusts, particularly for uh, advancement of religion and your mass bequests when somebody dies, as he is to be cited for nervous shock, for which he is rightly famous um, yes. when we go back to the railway cases. Okay, wow. And just, just to say, no doubt he was a very hardworking man, but uh, he was very well remunerated for that hard work. And uh, I, I came to this through um, a review I read by a friend of the show, uh, Supreme Court Judge Gerard Hogan, and he wrote an absolutely wonderful and such a complimentary review. Wow, guys, your, your ears must have been burning when you, when you read that, if, if I'm not mixing my metaphors. But he picked up on the fact that, you know, a judge in those days was very well remunerated and, and not so highly taxed and lived the high life. I mean, he used to go off to um, San Moritz and these sort of places and lived in a beautiful house, I think where Mount Anvil School is. Is that right? Up on the hill there? That's, was that, that, a, no. that, that, that That's correct. He had, he had, he had a couple of fabulous Houses. He was, by any measure, um, a, a, a fantastically successful um, legal figure in Dublin, and he he he, he certainly managed um, to amass a, a a good fortune out of all of his hard work. Judges were certainly very well paid at the time, and they certainly weren't paying the, uh, the 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 terrible rates of taxation that we like to complain about now. Towards the end of his career, Palace had an absolutely fantastic. Um, habit of taking wonderful vacations over the August period and of of shipping shipping off to the Alps, of crossing the Atlantic um, first class on lovely liners, and certainly he uh, he lived a very grand old comfortable lifestyle. Um, and he was quite an important social figure in Dublin. Um, we 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 spent some time going back through the old newspaper coverage of him. Um, he was at one point listed as I think the the the, the tenth or eleventh Una can correct me uh, most eligible bachelor in Dublin. <laughs> wow! So at that point, he was in his late seventies. <laughs> he was seventy. Oh, he never yeah. married. He was seventy. Uh, he did marry. Oh, he did marry. He did marry, but his 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 wife died at a relatively young age. Okay. And he had a, he had a, he had a very long widower widowhood. Okay. Um, so so, but he was. Uh, he was he was no stranger um, to Dublin social life, and he managed um, to have a, a a townhouse in Fitzwilliam Place, and right. the house in Dundrum was described as his rural retreat. Am yes. I am I right? Yeah. The, the, uh, uh, great to have a townhouse in a rural <laughs> retreat that you can pretty much walk between. <laughs> and he used to Absolutely. take the train into Harcourt Street hmm. from Dundrum to to get to work every day and there's a wonderful pen picture of him sitting on the tram uh, as it would have been coming in to work one of the days that we've seen in the course of our, our research. So he was he was quite a notable figure around town. And notwithstanding his Catholicism, I mean, obviously he was an establishment figure. He was very much a unionist, isn't that right? That's right. No. I think he's, he, he, he certainly comes out of that, of that political tradition. Um, he was a law officer before he was a judge. He became Solicitor General um, for Ireland, moved to London then as Attorney General um, for Ireland just before he became a judge and is very much kind of located within that Gladstonian tradition of that period and that's certainly where his politics lay. Now obviously we, we, we get a, a veil drawn across um, overt political activity when he goes to the bench and I, I'm not sure how, how, much his, um, how much the establishment in London were always a fan of Palace mm. Um, he certainly um, inconvenienced certain certain figures by some of his judgments over the over the course of the land war and over the course of agitation in that period. Um, so he's, I think it's I, I, his his biographer Vincent Delaney um, remarks that he probably wouldn't have approved of the the political administration that emerged after his death in 1920. Um, and and I, I I think that probably is a fair comment. 
Um, but that's certainly where his where his his politics come from. And going back to his judgments, I mean, we've obviously talked about the, the the sheer number and the range of subjects. Is it possible for people in that area to identify what you might describe as a judicial philosophy? Could you look at the way he approached cases and think? I mean, we we talk about judicial philosophy much more these days. But can you see sort of was he breaking ground in any particular area? I think in 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 some places more than others. I think for Palace. Um, he's referred to um, in 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 much later judgment as a, a great master of the common law. And what's remarkable about his judgments is their lucidity um, and their the 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 clarity that he brings to issues. I'm a bit more of a fan of Pallas mathematician maybe than <laughs> than, than Una is. I think he's um, he's extremely <laughs> organised in how he um, sets issues up and in how he comes about distilling the case law, finding the rule, applying the rule and explaining exactly what he's doing and why he's doing so it. So he's not kind of hiding behind legal language. He's, he's, he's clear in his judgment. I, th- mm. I think that's fair. Now, there's some areas, in, in, in particular areas in the law, um, in which he is extremely radical. So the, the charities question we've already touched off, and that's one of the things he's famous well, for. He, he moves there from being a conservative to a radical, doesn't he? I mean, he's he, he mm-hmm. totally changes mm. from his starting point, and and again, in fairness to the judge, his starting point is coming from the jurisprudence of the time, particularly yeah. given the dominance of English thought yeah. in, in that space. Mark, so what you see over time is his grappling with the facts, grappling with the law, and this understanding that. It has to be law for the people of this country. Yeah. And you have to take the culture and you have to take the heritage and the religion mm. into account. It has to work. Because he, I suppose he was appointed just after disestablishment, wasn't he? So it was... A, a, 1874 um, yeah, is his yeah, first year. Yeah. So that's that's a very, very good point when you sure. think about mm. where we were in terms of yeah. church-state relationships sure. at that stage. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really interesting mm. one. Una, will you tell us about the bequest for masses? We have, to, we have to get into this. This is a speciality of yours. I know one of the chapters, you, you talk about this, and this is very famous, and this has gone around the Commonwealth world, the common law world, hasn't it? it, it well, religion, I think, always opens up interest interesting conversations, Peter. And the wonderful thing about this line of authority by Pallas is that it has been applied in countries where we're not talking about Catholicism as the religion at all. So it's been used in relation to other religions like Hinduism and in Asian countries for particular types of Chinese law practices and religion. So it's the principles that underlie it. But I guess Catholicism is at the heart, certainly in the 1800s of Ireland. And there was the practice still a practice today for many practicing Catholics that when somebody dies, you would, in your will, leave money to have masses said for your soul. And this was the big thing. Was that a charitable bequest or not? Uh, and all the benefits that we all know that come with a charitable bequest. So the revenue can't get their hands on it, isn't so that it? revenue can't get their hands on it. But even back in the late 1870s, whether it was actually void so would could it would it actually trust. legal exactly yeah. would would it actually be enforced or not yeah. this was the big question and so when we go back to our uh, textbook 101 charity law we think is there a charitable purpose we would say well advancement of religion and the big one is there public benefit and this was the nut that palace had to crack was there public benefit attached to these requests for masses particularly if the bequest was silent on whether the Mass was to be said in public or was it to be said in private. So we have all of this wonderful authority in England, which at the time, the late 1800s, is going through uh, quite a change in its approach to religion. So teaching nuns good, 
nursing nuns, good praying nuns, not bad, but certainly we're not going to support them. So if you're a praying nun or if you're having mass said, where's the public benefit? Show me the goods, basically, is what they're asking in the English courts. And you're not seeing that in the English courts. So they're saying it's not charitable. When we come to Ireland, these are the authorities that are coming over before Palace when he's asked to determine whether a bequest for a masses was charitable or not. Sure. And we have right back at the start in the early 1870s, when he's just on the Court of Exchequer, his big decision in Attorney General and Delaney were following the English case of the time. He says, I'm really sorry, I can't give this the charitable status that you're looking for. There isn't the public benefit attached to it. Now, he is the one judge that does leave open the question. Had you said it was in public, I might have to think about it a bit further. So he leaves that door open, but he doesn't walk through it. And then we have a whole sequence of cases over the years of other judges applying Delaney and coming down on the side that this is not charitable until we come right up to the the butt of the 1900s and we have the great case of Attorney General Hanlon and Logue where we find Chief Baron Palace back in the driving seat 30 years after he first delivered Delaney going have to rethink this a little bit wow. now. Okay. And he did. In fairness to the judge, he said, no, I am actually going to rethink the public benefit piece here. There is public benefit because when you think about your religion, it should be according to the doctrines and the tenets of the religion. It's not what the objective outsider says. It's what the religion says, provided it's not illegal, immoral, contrary to public policy which is fascinating. And we see that carried right over into the 1961 Charities Act. The sure. language, if you go back to wow. the section, it's taking from Palace's judgment. Right. And um, that has not disappeared <laughs> in our 2009 Charities wow, Act wonderful, today. Una. Wow, so brilliantly explained. Wow, so that's, yeah, and, and, and it went around the common law world. And as you say, it was relied on in jurisdictions that didn't even have Christianity. Exactly. You know, it still, it still came into play. Noel, you're the company lawman in relation to Palace, CB. You know, what cases appeal to you in, in your research? Well, Palace is quite interesting in company law. I think you have to you have to make a certain amount of allowances um, <clears throat> for a judge in that period because, of course, as Palace goes onto the bench in the in, in the 1870s, um, company law in its modern form is is very much in its infancy. Um, and a lot of the big questions are are, are are still out there to be decided. Lifting the veil. Lifting the veil, that's right. What he does in company law is he comes across this problem of how do you decide whether or not a company is of good character. It's a great case involving the, the dealings at the licensing court in McCroom in the 1890s where the revenue get very upset because... Um, a district judge has granted a license to a company without giving it a search of good character. And the local constabulary effectively want to say, well, if you're going to let somebody sell drink, we want to know who that person is. And we want to be able to say, that's John the barman that you're giving the license to. And we think he's a good guy or a bad guy. Whereas some of the courts come along and say, well, hold on a minute. If we're going to license the company, that's a totally separate person. And, you know, company law theory, as we'd see it today, of course, um, says that the company is separate to its shareholders, it's separate to its directors. So there's a separate reputation in there. English judges and, and, and some Irish judges had been grappling with that question for quite a while. Palace 
cuts straight through to the, the, the company law doctrine and says, look, it doesn't really matter what the rule is. The, the fundamental question is, is, is John the barman a good guy um, mm. and does he have a decent reputation or not? You'll decide the company's reputation by looking at its human agents. Um, and really what we need to tell the McCroom licensing court is to apply some common sense and get on with the job oh, and let the company lawyers... Be applicable today. Wouldn't that be wonderful <laughs> if you could look at the company and look at the people running it and say, I'm going to judge whether this is a good company or not. Wow. Um, but, but, but the impact of his decisions, and I, I noticed in your research, you talk about, you know, in the modern era, maybe a high court judgment, you know, is, is kind of relevant. And we've, we've had a, pre, a high court judge uh, in this studio who talked about the fact that, you know, after 20, 30 years, you know, a lot of precedents have moved on. The law has moved on with all these. He lingered for so much longer. Isn't that it, Una? He, he is absolutely incredible in, in that space, because if you think about it, when we carried out our research, which ended in 2019 for, for publication <clears throat> of the book uh, shortly thereafter, he had been cited in 17 jurisdictions by name. And we were only searching for Palace CB. So there may be other cases where his lines from his judgment are being given, what they say, the court, the Irish court of whatever. That was in 652 cases. And we are going wow. from Fiji right through to North America, Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand, you name it, he's out there. When we think of, so that's breadth straight away, and that's in manifold different areas. When we think of longevity, which is the point that you're really interested in here, Peter, abroad, in the decade after his death, he was cited 93 times in the first 10 years. In the last 10 years that we looked at, so sort of the 20, 2009 to 2019, he was cited more than 49 times outside of Ireland in jurisdictions. Can you think of anybody who's comparable? I mean, the the person who leaps to mind is Lord Denning, who obviously sort of was on the English courts for must be some a similar length of time. But I mean, I, I can't think of any Irish judge who, who's of similar kind of stature, who's sort of uh, who, who sort of stood over everybody else like that. Can you? Well, the, wor the, the worldwide reputation is is I think you can fairly say unique to Palace. Um, like citations of Irish judges abroad, and certainly in some of the smaller jurisdictions. You know the 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 Kenyas and the Malaysias um, that we find with Palace, um, they're rare enough. Um, in all in in all honesty, and what's unusual about Palace is the breadth of 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 examples that you can find, the number of places in which he crops up, the number of different contexts and different subject matters um, in mm -hmm. which he crops up, and of course this this long pattern um, of citation over a very very long period of time such that here we are a century after his death, or slightly more than a century now after his death, and we're still today seeing Palace CB um, popping up in law reports, and um, he, some of them in very odd places around the world. And no, he got the ultimate endorsement, didn't he? He appears in Ulysses. That's correct. Yes. He does. He does indeed appear in Ulysses. He's one of the, uh, he's, he's one of the three judges who appears in Ulysses. And he just he has a he has a bit of a it's a bit part in all honesty, um, but it's he certainly does. It's an unfinished does. story. So yes. he's introduced as a character, mm. and did you hear what happened at the Royal University Dublin dinner? Yes, with Palace, and then you never hear the end. Oh, of the yeah, story. James Joyce knew all about so, him. Oh, Absolutely, I tell you, it's it's a it's a fascinating one. Listening to the two of you, I, I think this has been a real labour of love. You've really enjoyed doing this, Una, haven't you? This has been a fantastic project, which has 
started in 2017 and run on, Peter, because you can't write a book like this on your own. You need all of your friends and your colleagues involved. And we were very, very fortunate to gather a wonderful group of scholars around us who came on an adventure with us because we essentially said to them at the start, we're going to give you a goodie bag of cases. And the only thing these cases are going to have in common is they've all been authored by Chief Baron Pallas. And it's going to be up to you to sift through that bag and come back with a story for us. Is there anything worth knowing or is his greatness a myth? And in fairness to all of our contributors, they came on the entire journey with us, which resulted in the book. And we couldn't have done that because there is this myth that research just happens. It doesn't just happen. Somebody has to pay the bills behind the scenes. And we are extremely grateful to our funders who've enabled this work to occur. That's the uh, competitive funding from the Sutherland School of Law at UCD, uh, further funding from the College of Social Sciences and Law at UCD. And most recently, we're delighted to receive um, a a new grant from the Fitzpatrick Family Foundation, which will enable us to continue our work in this area. I have to say, money very well spent and known. I don't think you're finished completely with this project, are you? Well, we have some ongoing work with this particular story, um, which we'll, we'll be bringing out to, to, to publication um, in our own good time. Um, but yes, there's, there's more to learn about Christopher Pallas and there's more to learn about a really fascinating character um, in Irish legal history. Well, your book is absolutely fantastic. I'm just going to read it out here now for our listeners. This is Pallas, The Legal Legacy of the Last Lord Chief Baron. It's a cracker, folks. It really is. You want to read about a fascinating Irish historical character who has had such a contribution in, in, in the world. Four Courts Press. Four Courts Press. Four Courts Press. Press. Wonderful publisher. Okay, before we go, we have to ask the question, guys. Noel, give us a book or a movie that you'd like to recommend to our listeners. It can be on a legal theme. It can be on anything else. Oh, well, I don't think you're on a legal te- theme that you can really beat To Kill a Mockingbird, where, where law starts for so many of us. Well, I think we had John McMenamin in here mm. and he was saying he channels his inner Gregory Peck. <laughs> you know, and we all try and do that at every stage. Every Una, day. Una, any, any, any thoughts yourself on, on maybe a book or anything that might appeal? Uh, I'm going to go the book route, Peter. And one of the ones that I've read recently, thoroughly enjoyed and therefore highly recommend. It was a New York Times bestseller, which is always a help. It's called My Own Words and it's by the great Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, wow. And it is chronicling her life from her law student days when there weren't too many females around uh, in the law schools. I think we can safely schools. say another legal giant. Another <laughs> legal giant, certainly worthy of this book and I highly commend it to those who haven't read it yet. Okay, well, thank you guys. So can I thank our guests, Professor Una Breen and Dr. Noel McGrath from the School of Sutherland School of Law in UCD. Thank you so much for coming in and being guests on The Fifth Court. Our absolute pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. And that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guests, Professor Una Breen and Dr Noel McGrath for coming into us today and talking about the fascinating character that was Chief Baron Pallas. I did know a little bit about him, but I didn't know what they knew. What a fascinating interview. I know, and what a character. What a character. And the, the, the influence the man had. 
yeah. the impact he had. On the workload. Wow. And seemed to have a nice life in the process as well. Exactly. That big house up on the hill in Dundrum yeah. and going off to San Moritz or Saint Tropez like or wherever he used to go. Wow. Okay. I'd also like to say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios for their wonderful work in recording this show. And as always, if you have any comments or any thoughts or anything you'd like to say to us, please get in touch. We're always delighted to hear what our listeners have to say. And if they want to compliment us as well, Mark, that's yeah. actually okay but too. But they can criticise us. Oh, hey, hey, absolutely, it. absolutely. We're, we're always room for improvement. That's it. So for me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.